0: a lot
1: can happen in a year trends, debuts, world altering events and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line what can we learn about ourselves, our history and our modern world from the movies released in a single year well it turns out an awful lot I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. Season one of the A Year in Film TV series, as well as many of the movies we'll talk about in this show, are currently available on Hollywood Suite On Demand and the Hollywood Suite family of channels in Canada. And you can find out more about that at hollywoodsuite.ca. A single TV episode can't contain all the stories about movies in a year. So in each episode of the podcast, myself. Film and content specialist Cam Maitland and film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher will bring some more movies from the selected year to life. So, put on your boogie shoes and uh, keep an eye out for the bear in this episode of A Year in Film, 1978, Part 1, Disco and Truckers on Film. Are you someone who has strong feelings about disco? Well, if you are, you're not alone. North American mainstream popular culture has never really been able to figure out how it feels about disco. In the 70s, it seemed like it was this overnight sensation thanks to the antics of Studio 54, the total radio domination, and, of course, the star-launching Saturday Night Fever. But disco fell as fast as it arrived in white North America, becoming this punchline, and a source of unbridled rage, taking its last breaths at the Disco Demolition Night in 1979, which we're definitely going to be talking about in this episode. But Disco didn't actually take its last breaths. It never really went away. It just went back to where it came from. Alicia, Disco's your bag. Why don't you tell us a little bit about its origins?
2: Yeah, so what I think the most interesting thing to me about researching Disco is how there isn't one version of that history. There's a lot of competing, overlapping, and very much conflicting histories.
1: Is that because who's doing the narrative? Like, is that like the point of view kind of thing?
2: I think it, it's definitely a point of view. It's definitely a notion of, you know, whether you're talking about European disco or New York-based disco versus LA disco. But even more so, I think it comes down to, you know, who do you want to focus on as an act of cultural appropriation? Because today, when we look at disco, we know that this really came out of, you know, the music and a certain mode of dance that you saw in Black clubs um, in Detroit, in New York and elsewhere. But then you also have this disco kind of coming out of the queer clubs, especially in New York with places like um, the Anvil. And so no matter what, whether you're focusing more on the queer origin of disco or the Black origin, which is more the music side... It is an act of appropriation. Um, I really love this quote that uh, James Brown's trombonist gave when asked, I think, on a talk show about disco. He said, uh, you know, disco is just funk with a bow tie. And I think that that really (laughs) sums it up. Perfectly. But if we're looking at why, you know, the year 1978 would be so significant for Hollywood to really just like Hollywood goes disco, um, it's because it had become so ubiquitous by that time. By 1978, you have, you know, like Mickey Mouse and his friends recording their own disco album for kids and a, a variety of, you know, albums for children. You have seniors' homes having disco nights. You have disco size, like exercise classes for disco. You have basically disco reaches every, all of its saturation. And I think, of course, that's um, both, it's kind of a chicken or egg thing with a uh with Hollywood, But that's why 78, it's like such a banner year for disco on film.
1: Well, this had been building for a while. Um, we're obviously going to talk about Mahogany in a later episode of the podcast when we get into other years from the 70s. Um, and that's one of those ones that has a fantastic disco soundtrack. And uh, I have no idea why RuPaul hasn't made a remake of it yet where she plays both Diana Ross and Billy Dee Williams in it. <laughs> I would pay to see it. I think it'd be so awesome. Um, so it wasn't new on film. But why was 1978 the year that Ed every studio decided they were going to release their disco movie. Well,
2: you know, Saturday Night Fever is released in in 1978 or actually it's released in December of 1977. So, but it's the top film of, uh, one of the top films of 1978 as is Greece. But um, it's, it is interesting. Like I think it's a, a matter of all these films went into production at the same time. And then as we know, production varies. It can take 12 months to less time, maybe nine, even more. But, um, They all kind of come out around the same time. It just happens to be smack dab in 1978. There's, if you have to think of two kind of figures that may have killed disco, like some of the most hated people (laughs) in in the world, it was John Travolto and Disco Duck, which, if you don't know what Disco Duck is, it's a great Google search. It was, uh, I always thought as a kid that it was Donald Duck singing disco because I had the Mickey Mouse album, but it's actually like another act of cultural appropriation where this fake Donald Duck like. Doc is singing disco in Donald's voice.
1: I can see people loving it, and, and let me tell you, this is probably one of the things that was like immediately destroyed. I'm sure if they did like a tally of the things that were destroyed at Disco Demolition, their Disco Duck singles were yeah. probably yeah. like little, little puffs of thing.
2: feathers were like everywhere in the
1: stadium. Uh, Cam, do you want to tell us about Disco Demolition? This is actually a little disturbing, especially considering um, where we are now in 2020. Oh, I mean,
3: I, I don't know. D- d- disturbing is maybe overstating it, but uh, why 78 is interesting for Disco is partially because it kind of hits this falls off a cliff in 1979 when it comes to disco and popular culture. And part of it is this disco demolition. In 1978, Disco had finally outsold rock music in uh, record stores. I think partially due to the incredibly popular Saturday Night Fever album, um, and it made people concerned or excited, depending on if you were making money off of it or not. Uh, that disco is going to be the dominant kind of musical force going forward. People thought it was just going to be that's what it is, and rock is dead. Like, keep in mind, rock is uh, you know a few decades old. It's not a doesn't have the stranglehold it does today. Um, but one person who is was, uh, affected by this was Steve Dahl, who is uh, a DJ in uh, Chicago. And the station he worked for was actually switching formats from rock to disco. And he was leaving it. So he kind of realized he, he already had another job. Uh, there was still another rock station. Uh, but he realized he could kind of make hay, PR stuff out of this. Uh, and uh, set up this night uh, at a, a baseball game uh, where people could bring their disco records, that they they hated disco records. I guess they're it's kind of weird ducks. why did people have them yeah they're disco go ducks uh, hopefully no real ducks were <laughs> harmed but uh uh he, they would come uh and you know ha- uh, you know the seventh inning stretch or whatever they would throw these out uh on the field and they would I believe run over them as a the steamroller it was the main idea it's very uh, but he yeah exactly
0: <laughs> steamroller. well you
3: know it's satisfying though don't get me wrong I would love to see a steamroller plow over a pile of records regardless of content <laughs> But then um, this
1: turned into, like, a whole bonfire oh, issue, yeah, didn't it? Yeah. Like, this got it, way out of hand. It got
3: way out of hand. I believe the game was cancelled. Uh, <laughs> it was... Uh well how were
1: they expected to play yeah. with all that shrapnel? maybe it was
3: after the game because even it doesn't make any sense in the middle of the game uh n- not to uh show my cards of expertise but uh you can look at the footage and it's nuts because it's it's borderline riot and i think the, th- the funny thing is is steve Dahl did not expect this he d- he knew that there was like a disco sucks movement but he did not know that people were so passionate about it or that it would Get so wild that there was kind of this built-up resentment towards disco. It must have um,
2: smelled so bad. Like oh, oh and those terrible for you. Records. I'm
3: sure you could link uh, <laughs> plenty of lung cancer cases oh to uh, inhaling vinyl.
1: Well, just listening to the sounds of what it was like. How
0: about the Bee Gees?
4: Well, listen. We took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box, and we're going to blow them up
0: real good.
1: It's just wild. And I mean, I get it. We all have issues with the Bee Gees, but like that's a whole a whole other thing. It's just, it's bananas to think about this sort of backlash to a musical form.
3: Oh yeah. And I mean, it was big enough that it, it kind of, it affected Steve Dahl's career. I mean, he came back. He's, he's still a DJ of note, but he's the kind of guy who's like, to this day, all anyone wants to talk to me about is disco demolition. Mm. And it's like, <laughs> you know, 40 years later. Uh, it's kind of fascinating.
2: Maybe there's a lesson there, like a lesson in your career not to like, stage an event like this where you ask people to burn things. That's never going to go
3: right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do think that there's something to be said that you don't want to make your name on hating something, you know? One would think. Uh, and I think especially when, when so many people look at this footage and are like, this is just uh, you know people getting out uh, latent racism and homophobia and sexism because this is a genre that women and gay people and black people like. And that, I think, was not his intention at all. <laughs> like, I think he's uh, into all of it and probably push, come to shove, even probably likes disco more than uh, he admits.
1: Well, we need to talk about some of the albums that may have been burned at that time, for example, the soundtrack. To the eyes of Laura Mars. Uh Soundtracks were kind of a new concept in 1978. Uh Before that time, you had either like full-blown musicals that would have a soundtrack release or like you'd get the score of something. But to have like a soundtrack release for a film wasn't really something that was done. And this is for a very particular reason. Uh, Alicia, do you want to tell us a little bit about the eyes of Laura Mars and its soundtrack?
2: Yeah. So I I do want to have a disclaimer that I love this film with every ounce of my being, with the caveat that i don't necessarily think it's the best film or (laughs) you know that it there's a lot of levels of which it has high achievement and one of them is it's it's disco aesthetic and it's it's actual use of disco on the soundtrack but i do think this is a film that kind of can rub people the wrong way um but i'm glad we're talking about it because it's a complicated film and i think it's it's probably the film in a year in film i was most disappointed didn't make the cut in 1978's episode so i'm very happy you're asking me about it, but uh, the Eyes of well, especially Mars is such
1: a visual film. Like we're going to talk yeah. about the visuals in a minute, but it's a very visual film. So go watch it and then listen to the podcast. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the way to. I, I, I do want to give a shout out to my friend uh, Hammett, who bought um, a a whole box of DVDs of this film and would just hand them out as business cards um, because that's basically <laughs> how I watched this film. At a party, he just like this is like fifteen years ago. Just handed me a DVD. He was like, "Hi, my name's Hemet, and then handed me a DVD of The Eyes of Laura Mars. Um, but it's a it's a, an Americanization of the Jalo. Uh, genre, which I think Cam's going to talk about a little bit more, but uh, it stars Faye Dunaway, who was coming off of a number of Oscars and nominations, so this was quite a departure for her, and definitely critics reacted very negatively to her in this film. But it's it's a, a horror film that centers around a fashion photographer uh, named Laura Mars, who's played by Faye Dunaway. You know, she's really yoking in a way that was very 1970s and very disco uh, death with fashion and She's immersed in the photography world. The photographs that she takes as a character are actually the photographs of Helmut Newton, the famed photographer, uh, who was very, very intimately related to disco and someone who would have his uh,
1: his. Big photos were the ones of that most people know are the Dolph Lundgren, Grace Jones photos where they are yes. nude and very provocatively posed. Yes, and-, and
2: if you look at any history of Studio 54, which obviously is the epicenter of disco's ubiquity, he is often in the background of a lot of the photographs. It's an interesting kind of nod to the real photography industry and the the real idea that disco and photography were so closely United. Um, so when Laura Mars is taking photos, when she looks through the lens of her camera, she can foresee a premonition, or in some cases in real time, members of her entourage, her models, her assistant, her manager, being murdered. So there's a there's a serial killer on the loose, and there's this kind of telekinesis sort of theme where she can actually see it happening as one by one all of her intimates are being murdered. The scenes that take place around the photo shoots are kind of like mini discos. Sometimes they take place in Times Square with literal like garbage fires and cars on fire and the models like ripping out their hair, or they're taking place in, you know, disco clubs. Um, and so a lot of the music that you get on the soundtrack for Eyes of Love. Or Mars is both atmospheric, but then at times it's it's what we call diegetic. It actually exists within the film world. What we're hearing as an audience member is what the characters are meant to be hearing as they're dancing or as they're getting their hair teased and their, you know, makeup done <laughs> for this disco-esque photo shoot. A lot of the soundtrack is actually Barbara Streisand. Who, in case anyone is wondering, is not known for her disco stylings. She wasn't a disco queen. She is not, she's a queen, but she's not, she's just the queen. I don't think she needs (laughs) disco in front of that. But um, she was, it was meant to be her starring in the film and not Faye Dunaway. It was her boyfriend at the time who was producing it. And she ultimately felt it was not good for her career and, you know, turned down the role. But the song Prisoner was like a banner hit, and she really, really wanted to perform it, and it became a very top-rated track on the billboards. But the disco you do get on um, Eyes of Laura Mars, most famously, there's a song called Let's Chant by the Michael Ziegler band. Um, I think I'm saying that right. To me, it's like a syna. It's just synonymous with disco. It's not one of the most famous tracks, but I think everyone has probably heard it in the background of a commercial or something. It's the original, the origination of that. Ooh, yeah, ooh, sound yeah, that you and get it with it's disco. Yeah. It predates the Eyes of Laura Mars. It was released, you know, a few years prior to the to the film. So, but this soundtrack did make it um an even bigger hit, and I think it's my favorite scene in the film where they're getting ready really rapidly in this insane, I think, New Jersey warehouse on the water um, with this track playing diegetically and all the models are like you know teasing their hair and like it's just it's really great
1: it's one of those scenes that I have no idea why a current pop star like Ariana Grande or someone hasn't co-opted it and used it in a music video. Like that would be so perfect for now. <laughs> well,
2: I think if if Ariana Grande could go to a party with my friend Hammett and then meet him, he would yeah. just hand her a DVD for the Ice of <laughs> Mars, <laughs> and it would happen. Yeah, this is a film. You know, this is a film we've had on Hollywood Suite for a number of years. It, it comes and goes. We really like it. Um, as a channel. But, it, you know, it's not a very well-known film. Criterion only very recently put it on their streaming channel, but it was also... an The reason my friend bought a box of the DVDs is they were out of print and there was no way yeah. 15 years ago to see this film unless you had an old VHS. So I don't think... I think it's very... Um, undervalued and underseen. So I think that's probably why it hasn't been heavily sampled.
1: Part of the joy of this film is, and part of the joy of watching a lot of older movies, is seeing these baby stars who weren't stars yet oh now God. in this, like, origination oh form. And this has, let's see, Raul Julia, Brad Dourif, Tommy Lee yeah. Jones. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, baby Tommy Lee Jones. It's Tommy Lee. It's just like he shrunk
2: like baby, an apple. Baby Tommy Lee Jones for oh, yeah. his first leading roles. Yeah, Brad Dourif, like you said. And, like, pre teen, Alien,
3: teen Brad Dourif. Yeah, it's yeah. before Alien. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And
2: also uh, someone who I love and is so dear to my heart, and we lost him, I think just last year, but um, René Aubergenois, who Mm. is so excellent as a queer icon in this film. Um, you would know him from Deep Space Nine. He's Odo. Maybe not recognize him because he's wearing so many prosthetics. But he was a big Robert Altman uh, actor. This, yeah, and real Julia is at his swarmiest, and he is so <laughs> yeah, good. Is this so like gig- this disco gigolo? He <laughs> he plays her um her ex husband, and you know if we're, we were talking about the actors. The actors are iconic and amazing. Diane Flugel, who was a former model, and this was her first role, and she's so good in it. The director is Irving Kirshner, who uh, most of us would know as being the director of The Empire Strikes Back. And he's, you know, again, another director that we don't talk enough about, but it was actually George Lucas who was watching a preview screening of this before its release. It may have even been a work print. It wasn't completed yet. And he hired Irving Kirshner for The Empire Strikes Back, probably the most sought-after director position, you know, film of, of that year, for sure. Like, everyone, Star Wars had come out the first one, and was dying to know who he's going to hire after he announced that he wasn't going to direct the second and third one. And so it goes to Irvin Kirshner based on the eyes of Laura Mars. And I just think that's so interesting. And then this is also based on a spec script by John Carpenter. John Carpenter has kind of since disowned it. I mean, he has a career of disowning projects. There's that we very love.
1: people more honest <laughs> than John Carpenter yeah. when it comes to his previous and, and work. And we're going to yeah. talk
2: about that on a future episode. But... um yeah, he this was his first foray into a, a big studio film, you know, and and not an independent like sci-fi of his own making. This really is kind of his first Hollywood film. Um so it has an incredible pedigree and I do think give it give it 5 or 10 years and this film will be as famous as, you know, some of the more well-known disco films. It's also I think a very um a very innovative use of of the horror kind of tropes of photography and giallo and how Antonioni kind of used photography and blow up and how giallo like Suspiria with Dario Argento uses uh, sex and violence and young women. it It is a film that actually does talk back a lot to these themes that, we may see as just being exploitive.
1: Well, and the models all have names, which I always really they're, appreciate. They're, they're yeah. actual characters.
2: That's a great point, Becky. Um, they have names and they're um, the casting of this, the casting of the models was done very thoughtfully. Um, there's models of color, which you don't see a lot in films from the late 1970s, with the exception of Mahogany. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a it's a film that's very near and dear to my heart, and I hope people want to see it.
1: Well, we brought up the word giallo a couple times. And Cam, you're actually the one who taught me how to say the word giallo. You say like you're saying ciao, ciao.
0: Sure,
3: yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's Italian so, uh, for yellow. So that's why I'm always like, think of yellow.
2: Oh, that's a good tip. Giallo.
3: <laughs> I, I don't know. That, I don't know that we're uh, derived from it. I, don't take Italian lessons from me. Is all. I say. <laughs>
1: but but you can explain to us what the giallo genre sure. was basically.
3: Uh, well, I mean it, it's named yellow because it's it's kind of referencing uh, the old paperback kind of uh violent novels that were popular and and the comics the uh fumetti if you will of italy uh where uh there was a genre which was like murdery kind of cool books that were very popular pulp fiction essentially uh and um it turned into these movies uh kind of through the 60s uh into the 70s you know people like mario bava uh uh, Dario Argento that we talked about and it's interesting because it links at least in my mind a lot to disco some of the disco yest movies are uh, Giallo, uh, simply because they tend to be about these affluent people uh, they tend to have wonderful uh, bumping soundtracks, and you gotta remember that, you know, part of why 1978 disco was popular is because rich people loved disco, <laughs> and you see that in Eyes of Laura Mars, uh, but Giallo uh, what, the kind of connection with Laura Mars is uh, for the most part, a lot of them are artists, basically non-detectives being thrown into a detective story, which this is. Uh, And also a lot of them involve kind of light, supernatural stuff. Uh, Laura Mars has a psychic connection with the killer. Uh, We don't need to know much about it. It's just kind of like she sees through their eyes sometimes. Uh, That is not a major plot point. It's not like she goes to uh, a psychic to understand it. Uh, But yeah, using that, she kind of is thrust into this mystery and solving the mystery. It also has a lot of the same things. uh, the, The point of view of the killer is very important in Mm -hmm. Giallo. Uh, Quite often, because you don't want to reveal who it is, what they did was do a first-person murderer. Um, uh, The plus side with Laura Mars, I will say, is is a lot of uh, the Italian Giallo is... Mm, nonsense (laughs) Uh, borderline dreamy (laughs) it's it's a lot more about the visuals yeah the visuals and the music and everything uh whereas laura mars is is a a bit of a tighter mystery uh where you can kind of solve it along the way as you would with a hollywood movie i know a lot of uh people in uh, canada and the u.s uh, just can't stand giallo partially because it's just kind of dreamy and weird uh but this is this is an interesting americanization of it and people try often to kind of make an american version but uh very few pull it off as well as uh eyes of laura mars
2: yeah i think you're right and it has you know in a very typical giallo fashion a twist ending and i still think the twist ending is quite effective and uh no, I, would, I don't want to say it's unpredictable, but it, it really, there's a good payoff to this film in a way that I always feel kind of ripped off by in Giallo.
1: Well, speaking of dreamy and weird, uh, we need to talk about our next film, which sits in that exact dreamy and weird sort of category. But of course, because it's disco, it's a musical. And weirdly, it's one of the few disco straight up musicals that was made. It was based on a Broadway show. Cam, do you want to tell us a little bit about The Wiz?
3: Sure. I mean, uh, The Wiz, it's. Uh was a very popular broadway production uh it basically took the kind of classic l frank Baum story and uh added uh a lot of the music of charlie smalls he he really kind of created the stage musical um it was an exciting broadway hit hollywood came a knockin uh in spite of the fact that it would be uh, an all-black cast, it was something that was so popular and the music worked so well that uh, Hollywood was very into it. Uh, so then uh, I believe 20th Century Fox uh Purchased the the rights to the musical while it was still a musical. Um, yeah, I
1: think they originated it.
3: Yeah, so then uh, then things got a little weird because uh, <laughs> I mean it was popular enough that it caught the attention of uh, disco queen Diana Ross. Who very much wanted to play Dorothy, uh, who in in the stage version is pretty much Dorothy as you would expect. Uh, like at, at worst, maybe like a thirteen year old. Um, and Diana Ross was uh, not a thirteen year old, but she was. I very- think
1: in the books, Dorothy is originally supposed to be like five or six. Yeah, years, I mean. yeah.
3: So it, it is aged up a bit in the Whiz, but it is not aged up to uh, the levels of old. Diana Ross. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it became an interesting sort of uh, fight. It was supposed. To be John Badham directing, um, but he left eventually, because uh, the studio did want to, like, Diana Ross made sense except for the Dorothy thing. Um, We
1: should also be clear that John Badham was the director of Saturday Night Fever, so this was a big yet. Yeah,
3: it was going to already be, like, a little uh, kind of a disco-y feel. Um, And the truth is, it's kind of a weird thing, because I don't want to act like Diana Ross ruined it, because I think Diana Ross very much got it made. Uh, She was very passionate about the project. She ended up bringing on Joel Schumacher, who at the time actually was predominantly known for writing uh, black cinema, he wrote Car Wash, he yeah. wrote Sparkle. Um so she brought him on, he threw away the script entirely. <laughs> uh, and just
1: Sparkle was almost like a Diana Rossi in sort of dr- Proto Dream Girls, wasn't yes, it? Yes,
3: yes. Yeah. It, it it very much is, is the inspiration, I think, for the Dream Girls musical, which is interesting. Joel Schumacher uh, was
2: also a fashion designer earlier mm. in his life so i mean that's something we should put a pin in when we talk about uh, costumes
3: in, <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. yes. well, and he,
2: he
1: ran with the with the halston crowd
2: yeah
3: yeah he was a studio oh, 54 guy <laughs> yes yes uh, i mean i can only imagine. he was also like the toast of the town i mean the guy that wrote car wash come on yeah um <laughs> he also uh in a very 70s way he and uh diana ross were obsessed with uh this semi-cult-like teachings of uh, Werner verner erhart which was called est at the time uh so it turned into this kind of journey of the self for this adult woman uh through a nightmare new york um diana ross brought along all sorts of great performers uh and it makes for a movie uh that is unusual but uh very unique
1: it's also one of the only opportunities to see a lot of these black actors on film getting them to actually yeah. see what they do like Nipsey Russell. Yeah,
3: yeah. I mean Le- Lena Horne's in it and she's actually only in 22 movies, so th- this is one of your only shots.
2: Interesting enough Lena Horne, just to come back to the you know the director of this is Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm. That was his mother-in-law at the time. <laughs> he was quite a bit older but he married her daughter and then got served divorce papers on set of the whiz from said Mm, daughter then had to direct her mother
1: (laughs) 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 and to be fair what is an unbelievable performance it's one of those like you give this person an oscar for being on camera for three minutes in the
2: sky like it's lena it's lena horn like there's there's no one she's the most she's a legend
3: Yeah, Yeah. no one else can come down in a bubble like her. No. Uh, And and you're you're also right, Becky, that interestingly for disco movies, there are actually not a lot of predominantly black casts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dervil Martin made Disco 9000 in 1977, uh, and Disco Godfather is kind of an embarrassing Rudy Ray Moore movie. But uh, (laughs) yeah, there weren't a lot of... uh, black people controlling these narratives and that is also a way that i think diana ross and kind of everyone involved behind the scenes working on the music really affected and this like
2: movie. motown like barry gordy's production and for film through motown was highly involved in this as it was for you know mahogany and for lady sings the blues so it is a good point that this is one of the only disco films that has black people behind the scenes Mm-hmm. well and motown brought out their big
1: guns oh, like God, just yeah. in the if you will adult chorus alone you have roberta flack you have sissy houston who's whitney houston's mother um you got luther vandros in the
2: choir like it's <laughs> freaking wild that's quite the rap party <laughs> with Minnie yeah. lament recently having been filed against for divorce <laughs> Wrapping
1: up the whiz. Uh, Alicia, you mentioned he had an interesting quote because this, of course, they instead of being Kansas, instead of being Oz, this is a fantastical version of New York. Mm -hmm. And you had an interesting quote from Sidney Lumet about why this was um, so important to him that it be set in New York.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, in all the press junkets leading up to this film and the promotion, you know, the question of how does this compare to the MGM 1939 Judy Garland uh Victor Fleming, you know Wizard of Oz, what what is, you know, what how did you make a spin on it, which I mean the answer to me would be quite obvious. <laughs>
0: but <laughs> yeah. he
2: he was really interesting and he just said like, you know, they they are Kansas, they are rural, they are white. We are urban, we are New York, we are black even though he is not a black director of course, <laughs> but he was very interested in civil rights. Um and, you know, I think New York is the star of the Whiz for me anyway, um, in the same way that, which is interesting because, like, the Emerald City is is meant to be a fictional place and you don't really get a sense of what Kansas is like watching the 1939 Wizard of Oz, but you get a real sense of New York in 1978 before it got cleaned up <laughs> by uh, Giuliani. Same way with Eyes of Laura Mars. Like, you're really seeing New York in a way that, you know, for us born in the 80s we never got to see new york like this outside of on film um we you know those scenes are like now where the disney store is in, in yeah. times square <laughs> a lot of it is a set you know the whiz is definitely the universal backlot but a lot of it's not and i love i think one of my favorite locations on this film is you know when they're when dorothy stumbles upon um the tin man and it's the tin man basically uh nipsey russell in just the the best costume, the best <laughs> role. Uh, Nipsey Russell as the Tin Man lives on the tracks of the Coney Island Cyclone, the historic um, roller coaster still standing today at Coney Island. And I just love those scenes of Coney Island. Um, and I love that so much of the geography of New York in this film is important because, you know, it's meant as. Um, Cement is a cute little quip, but it's actually quite biting. In the beginning of the film, Auntie M, you know, uh, Dorothy in this case is a, a teacher in Queens, unmarried, lives with her aunt, um, kind of, you know, lives to serve everyone else and doesn't have her own life or her own set of dreams. And her Auntie M says, Girl, do you know you're 24 years old and you've never, never been, been south, south of 125th, 125th Street? <laughs> Well, you haven't and it's such an important moment and it's such an important note that the story of the wizard of oz is about a journey I'm um, kind of like what cam was saying earlier uh and so seeing you know her journey to manhattan and specifically to the emerald city which in this case is the world trade center it's really uh, staggering actually to, to watch this film today um when they arrive to the emerald city you know there's this huge choreographed dance sequence with hundreds of extras that required over twelve hundred different costumes. Because you know how in the original there's the horse of a different color and it keeps changing color? Well, mm-hmm. I guess Sydney Lumet and the production designer, and probably this seems to me like a very Joel Schumacher thing. We're like, you know what we're gonna do? <laughs> Instead of having one horse that changes colors with the lighting technique. We're going to put like four or five hundred extras wearing dresses that all change colors in every. And they're instance. Oscar
1: de La Renta, aren't they? Like they're a beautiful yeah, Oscar de La Renta designer. Okay. Yeah,
2: they're chiffon, um, beautiful primary colors. They change from like yellow to green to blue to red. The Oscar de La Renta dresses. It's gorgeous. And this is all taking place in the courtyard of, you know, between the two towers, the twin towers. And, uh, It's just such a great New York. It's such a great, dirty New York. The subway scene, I remember seeing this as a kid, and the the scene in the subway, the New York subway, where the pillars come to life is still terrifying to me as an adult. And I remember getting on the subway after watching this for the first time (laughs) for the show and just being like, oh, God. Like, Especially during what we're going through now with COVID, where riding a subway is a little bit more anxiety-inducing and stressful. I'm like, that pillar could come to life at any <laughs> second.
3: <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it's I, teeming
2: with life. Probably
3: yes. uh, riding the subway in 1978 was uh, scary, too. <laughs> yeah, Pillar. yeah, Pillars I mean, or no.
2: So much of this film is is an acid trip, like, yeah, uh, yeah. really, truly, and graffiti, you know, coming to life and crawling off the walls. And it, sure. I think this is one of those visually innovative films that, from the late 70s, absolutely, and, and as we know, it was... A pretty, a pretty big disappointment for its studio. It was, it was a high budget. Um, a lot was riding on it. It's since become it was a cult money hit.
1: had no object kind of thing. So yeah. there really wasn't a way they could have recouped it, regardless. Like it was just they just put so much money into it. And
2: in some ways, I think it's really respectful that they had that kind of faith in a film that had such a intimate connection to the black community and to black um, excellence and creatives. But you need to put a cap on things, or it tends yes. to be a disaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: I mean, Universal literally gave the film no, like, there was no budget. You were allowed the to do... the limit. Which is kind of classic seventies. What destroyed uh, a lot of people's careers? Uh, yeah, it's because uh, Fox eventually balked didn't didn't want Diana Ross. Universal swept in and was like, mm-hmm. uh, "Yeah, here's a blank check." Uh, and I mean, they they spent it to their credit. Uh, you see it on screen. Uh, it just didn't quite work.
2: Well, sydney Lamette had to pay for his divorce, so I'm sure that came. In
1: handy. <laughs> well, I think the strongest point of this of this for me is of course where it started was the music they it, it really transcends there's a scene in um, pose in FX's pose where uh, Billy Porter and MJ Rodriguez sing home together yeah. in an AIDS hospice I watched it on a plane oh, I was God. just sobbing my eyes out the poor person next yeah. to me was like oh man I'm stuck next to this woman but uh, like it's just like the words are just so powerful and the music's so powerful and the performances in this like I still tear up watching a number of the of the scenes and when they sing brand New day. You mm-hmm. want to cheer. You're like, yes, it is a brand new mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Eveline is like the best villain. Like it's so much fun.
3: Absolutely. And I and I do really think um, that the music is what stands up. As much as I think that you can be a fan of um, the original stage musical and say that there's a lot of problems with uh, the way they adapted it, uh, you. It's tough to argue that those original songs are better. <laughs> like I think the I like the way the new songs are staged, and quite often I oh, think yeah. when you when you see a production these days, even I think the wizard the Wiz Live, which they did recently with Queen Latifah and what have you, mm-hmm. uh, is airing a little more to the movie style mm-hmm. uh, music because that funkier disco version of those songs is a lot more fun, sped up a little more lively.
2: What would what do you think kids would think of this film today? Like, I'm curious. Like, I, I, I don't
3: have children. Just uh, afraid. <laughs>
1: I'm going to sound very weird about this. Uh, I have a friend who is a black mother, and she has two beautiful mm-hmm. little boys, and she actually plays this for them on a regular basis, and they love Excellent. it. They yeah. ask for the soundtrack all the time, totally Excellent. on board with it. I mean, I it's funny. I that.
3: I like the... the, the, the I, I can see that a kid would probably love the, the, the Scarecrow and Lion and yeah. Tin Man in the same way, but... Uh, I don't know, I would have been afraid of it.
2: <laughs> oh, I was afraid of it, but i the visuals were so strong that as someone who was about to become a visual person in my career, I think it, it was imprinted on my brain. Because, um, yeah, the scary things always stay with you, but if, if the scary part is just on the surface and really there's all this underpinning of creativity and beauty, which The Wiz has, it, it's such a success.
1: And joy and celebration and... Uh... Uh, Which takes us into our next segment, which is going to have a lot to do with music, was kind of launched by a song, which is kind of the exact opposite in terms of genre of disco. So when we come back, what does a song performed by a fictional character for a bread company have to do with one of the biggest movie and TV trends of 1978? We're going to find out after the break. So when you're talking about the glamour and the richness and the sumptuousness of disco, it only makes sense to talk about a different kind of glamour. The glamorization of the blue-collar worker as epitomized by the American trucker. 1978 was all about trucker culture, and again, like disco, it had been kind of building up into this point over most of the 70s. It was everywhere. On TV shows, it was in pop music, and of course it was in movies. People had CB radios in their home. That's how big this was. And that also brought on the usage of trucker slang, or CB slang. And I think that's the thing that's really carried forward most into current pop culture and stuff like ten four good buddy. People say that, right? Cam, tell yes. me a little bit about
3: this. <laughs> Confirmed. People do say ten four good buddy. Yeah, yeah. I don't call Ms. Piggy
2: said it in one of the Muppet movies. Oh, sure. Oh good. Okay. I mean, <laughs> she's driving a giant truck. Yeah.
3: She seems like a, she's got a bit of a trucker attitude. Yeah, yeah, uh the trucker craze is kind of an interesting one. Yeah, a lot of factors. Uh, leaned into it why it's so popular in 1978 is a lot like disco there was a popular film in 1977 smoking the bandit uh, which kind of made it peak in 1978 but it had been happening throughout the entire 70s Uh, what really kind of kicked it off was the uh, 1973 oil crisis to combat that in the united states they had made a 55 mile an hour speed limit on highways across america uh, which is something that horribly affected uh, truckers and how they made their money. Um, was
1: that a big like transport thing? Because like, were they being paid by the by the length of time they would go yeah, for, like how long they were yeah, in it, they or were, by miles? They
3: were being paid by how quickly they got stuff placed. Okay, uh, so one way uh, they tried to combat it was through CB radios, where they could speed and tell each other uh, where to go. Like Smokey and the Bandit, Smoky uh, or the Bandit is uh, a spotter, so he would be driving ahead to see if there were cops basically truckers uh became these kind of fun outlaws because they refused to abide uh you may be familiar with the stupid song i can't drive 55 or uh <laughs> they, they had a saying which i enjoy called damn the double nickel uh they really oh, wow. really hated this uh
2: make that on a t-shirt for oh
3: yeah i mean i'm sure that, that you can find a vintage one probably uh but yeah they they their livelihood was affected by this and and I think like today people were realizing that these guys were essential workers and they needed to do Mm -hmm. what they needed to do and uh, getting around the laws was kind of uh, fun and enjoyable and also simultaneously in 1975 the CB radios, you used to have to buy a license for a CB radio which cost quite a bit but then they got more and more popular and by 75 uh, licenses were a buck so uh, truckers had them, people in cars had them, kids had them, suddenly uh, talking to each other on CB radio was kind of a fun thing, Uh, but truckers were, of course, using it to kind of circumvent these laws uh, to kind of save their livelihoods, Uh, and yeah, it, it just kind of related to the cowboy uh, thing in people's minds uh, these liberated guys who lived on the, the code of trucking honor and uh, didn't didn't care about your laws or government uh, but that extended to fashion you know uh, trucker hats uh, plaid shirts um, and yeah everybody uh, even without a truck wanted to be a trucker
1: but that sits very much into that rugged sort of thing, which was also very much in vogue for the type of manhood that people were looking at at that time. Like, Burt Reynolds was a star, and of sure. course, Clint Eastwood, which we need to talk about our next film from 1978, which is still Clint Eastwood's highest-grossing film. And Alicia, you have a bone to pick with this film. Mm-hmm.
2: What is wrong with Every Which Way But Loose? I mean, there's a lot wrong with it. There's, a lot, <laughs> there's a lot right with it, but... um, Just to, you know, for those of you who don't, the listeners who don't know this film, you probably have seen a still or the posters are incredibly famous. I really want to track one of the vintage ones down. This is the film that Clint Eastwood starred in as a trucker, as we're talking about, with an orangutan. Uh, the orangutan's name is Clyde. And on the poster, it's him hugging Clyde, and uh, you know that drew me in at first. Like this idea of, I'm sorry, what is this Clint Eastwood film where his co star is a monkey? <laughs> it's know. an ape. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an very ape. sorry, you're right. I, I apologize. I apologize. An an ape. Um, and. I'm sorry. Also, it's his highest grossing film and still one of the highest grossing films of all time.
3: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. Up until uh, Marvel came along, really. It was was really up there.
2: But the bone that I have to pick is, you know, this is a film that is very steeped in trucker paraphernalia and trucker way of living, um, as Cam's described. And I just wish there was a scene where in the truck, in which always Clyde is at his side, Clyde is his co-pilot, I just think it's a missed opportunity not to have Clyde at one point wear his own trucker hat. <laughs>
4: um,
2: but that is to say, Clyde is treated very seriously as a sidekick in this film. Um, in some ways, Clyde is the straight man yeah. to uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, character Philo Badeau, which is one of <laughs> the, is the more name. odd names <laughs> for, a, <laughs> for a protagonist. Um you know, there's a lot of moments where you kind of see Clyde, who was the consummate actor that we'll we'll talk about in a second, you know, kind of like roll his eyes at, at Badeau's silliness or kind of like slap his forehead at this really <laughs> ridiculous man who's chasing after this woman across the country that he, he really shouldn't be because she's made it very clear she's not that interested in him. Um but when Clint Eastwood has talked about, you know, Clyde as a co star, he he said very bluntly that Clyde was I can't remember if he said one of, I think he said the most professional Mm -hmm. actor he had ever worked with that. He definitely did get bored if there was multiple takes. So they really figured out with the director, uh, James Fargo, how to get Clyde in, in one take. And he was the one take wonder, um, (laughs) Eastwood has talked with nothing but immense respect and really no kind of cutesiness about Clyde, um, and it's interesting because this film, the co-star of this film is his longtime romantic partner and collaborator, Sandra Locke. Who yeah, it's not has, exactly the
1: nicest thing to say, right? It's like, yeah, this is the, the most monkey, professional person.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the monkey's better than Sandra Locke for him in this film. Um, that relationship is very well <laughs> written about in terms of how uh, toxic it became. She's the future director of Rat Boy, if you want to fall down a Google <laughs> hole. But it is it is. I, I think Clyde in this film is so, so good. There are parts of this film I really love. So basically, he's a bare-knuckle brawler. So he makes his money by showing up to, like, factory floors or, you know, work sites and picking the biggest guy and, and challenging him to a, a boxing match and then collecting all the cash. This I mean, this is, like, late 70s, middle America, working, working class. And I actually really love seeing this. As Cam pointed out to me when we were talking about this film... It is a very violent film. Like if you took if you took a shot for every time a punch (laughs) is is thrown, you would be like off your ass within twenty minutes. But it should be pointed out that the biggest fights, like the, the brawls that are the most violent, are when Philo Bidot is beating up neo-Nazis. Yeah. So yeah. like like Nazi yeah, there's a whole neo-Nazi games.
1: plot line. Well, and then of course we also have to talk about how Ruth Gordon is in this film and single-handedly <laughs> <laughs> takes on the Nazis or yeah. the like, neo-Nazis herself yes. with a
2: shotgun. And it's yes. awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's Maude Maud of Harold and Maud plays um Ruth Gordon, just one of the biggest treasures in terms of actors of our time. Plays yeah, his mother and um wow. You know how you could picture the stereotype of a little old woman with a rolling pin like up in the mm-hmm. air yelling mm-hmm. just picture that and like curlers picture that but she has like a giant shotgun yeah. <laughs> perfect and she well, uses
1: it well fun. aside from Sandra Locke who is like the perfect villain because not only is mm-hmm. she she's a jerk like she's she's, she's a femme fatale know, she's a femme fatale thank you that's the word I'm looking for <laughs> um, and I, she, like <laughs> <obviously>. <laughs> I like no, jerk obviously so synonymous with jerk <laughs> femme fatale. the famous totally. jerks
3: of old Hollywood <laughs> <laughs>
1: The blonde jerks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Classic laughs> there's, <Hollywood>. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few jerks. of yeah. us. <laughs> well, she's a jerk, right? She's manipulated. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's a lot. going on. Uh, listen, However, she gets hers. <laughs> Exactly, but she is also she is also, as to Alicia's point, very clear that she's ditching him. He should not be going on this giant adventure. Uh, Her singing; she's an aspiring singer. Her singing is fantastic, so the music is is fantastic. Um, And of course, she sings live in a lot of this stuff. And then Beverly D'Angelo is there as well in a very early role, Beverly, playing a character called Echo, and she also holds her own in this, being the one who like gets them their money when things go wrong in a brawl. Like it's a really. something so blue-collar from the 70s and very, if you will, masculine, um, there's a really good balance of what the women and the men are doing to kind of contribute to their adventure.
2: These are strongly written female characters. I think every female character in this film at one point shoots a gun at a guy who's stupid. (laughs) But I don't think there's a lot of gunfire between the male characters. It's all fists and... I mean, these are the moments where I say Clyde is just rolling his eyes in the front seat of a truck. There's a lot of great scenes with Clyde where they take him to a Chinese food restaurant and he can like successfully using a, a, I think it's a spoon, not a fork, like eat chicken fried rice. And as, you know, Filey Bidow is a very responsible I don't want to say pet owner because he really does have Clyde as his best friend. Yeah. The story is that he re- he bare-knuckle boxed someone um, to rescue Clyde because yeah. he found him in a cage. But they, I love that he, he controls Clyde's drinking. He's only allowed to have a couple beers on Saturday nights. Which <laughs> yeah. is just like everyone watching and being like, I should really do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, mean, I should only drink on Saturday. I need a file of the dough to tell me I'm only allowed to drink on Saturday nights at the Chinese food restaurant. He's
1: also the ultimate wingman because there's yeah. a whole plot line where he gets Clyde laid. Yeah. They break yeah. into a zoo to get Clyde yeah. laid. It's wild. It's,
3: yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And if yeah. you, It
3: turns into
2: a kind of porkies. <laughs> yeah.
3: I think that if you can't, uh, like, I mean, uh, it's always kind of hard in modern times watching any trained animal. You're like, yeah. ugh. Yeah, it's true. But ma- I- I'll tell you, if you don't laugh at Clyde enjoying a beer and watching a stripper, uh, you're not human. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the wildest things I've ever seen. And I think that that's partially, it's, it's a very unlikely movie because it was originally brought to Clint Eastwood in the hopes that he would give it to Burt Reynolds. But... But they didn't, yeah, they did not plan on Clint Eastwood loving it and demanding to star in it. Uh, And it was a thing that everyone told him not to do. I think partially because, like you say, every guy in this movie is an idiot. Even it's very even the stick, characters you like, Clint yeah, and, and it and I think it shows a, a he's quite adept at it, and, and partially mm-hmm. because he's so good at improvising with Clyde, because you kind of get the impression that Clyde is sort of doing what he should, but also sort of not, and, and part of what makes it work is Clint Eastwood knows how to sell whatever slight deviation Clyde makes and yeah, yeah it, it, their
2: chemistry is is very incredible it's very impressive especially considering there is no chemistry between Clint Eastwood and his real life wife <laughs>
3: <laughs> should have married a monkey that's uh, easy <laughs> easy
1: I think the thing I love so much about this Clint Eastwood performance is he's doing that thing we know him for where he's very quiet and he's very steely and he's got the squinty eyes then you see that translated into, oh no, he's Steely and is quiet, and he's doing that because he's <laughs> stupid.
3: He's so dumb, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he I, probably
1: has a lot of head trauma. And, and I
3: think that that's Clint Eastwood got that about his own image, like he yeah. understood that you can make fun of this guy because the, there's this kind of person that exists, and and they'd also be kind of uh, you know a screw up. Uh... <laughs> there's a
2: lot of, there's a lot of fragile masculinity mm-hmm. in this film, especially between him and his his brother, who's also kind of a, a sidekick sure. and a surrogate character. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I think if there is something really redeemable about this film, it's how those female characters are, are written and performed and given a lot of weight <laughs> in a way that... Uh, Clint Eastwood in his own film isn't.
1: Well, speaking of women in film, we should actually talk about our next film, which features an iconic performance from Ali McGraw, as well as an iconic hairstyle that, oh, Alicia has some opinions about. <laughs> I have another bone. I have yeah, another sure, bone to yeah. pick. <laughs> also should have
3: been under a trekker hat, <laughs> probably. <Yeah.
1: laughs> Cam, we're going to get you to talk about this, though, because you're the one who discovered C.W. McCall. Do you mm. want to <laughs> tell us a little bit about Convoy and that song?
3: Sure. Uh, so I think a lot of people know Convoy. Like, by uh, the mid- mid-70s, trucker stuff had uh, permeated the culture enough that uh, someone decided they wanted uh, to sell their bread uh, via a trucker character. C.W. McCall, who made the song Convoy, a lot of people know it, is not a real person. C.W. McCall is along the lines of uh, Ernest P. Worrell, where he is a he started off as a uh, regional ad character, uh, and he was a trucker uh, who was hauling this bread and talking about the bread quite a bit, like convoy. Uh, and uh, the first ad is all about him, uh, you know, pulling up. It's like uh, I was hauling forty miles, and there's other uh, <laughs> Well, trucking old home, I was working the blizzard. She is colder than the Minnesota well digger's gizzard. I was up to my drive shaft and 18 inches of slush. Heavy white stuff. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he p-
2: pulls up to a diner. That's going on a t-shirt, sir. too. For yeah. <laughs>
3: Uh, he pulls up to a diner and it's heavily implied that <laughs> he has sex with the waitress <laughs> in this bread <laughs> ad. It's a, yeah, it's a strange thing, but the, the bread ads were so popular and this character, uh, made by William Dale Freese Jr., who's a, uh, ad man cut a record of essentially like outlaw country songs
1: there's nine of them by the end of his career there were nine
3: nine records let's make it clear nine records with many tracks uh bring
2: out the (laughs) steamroller yeah
3: oh dear uh who knows maybe he's got a great song we don't know uh the the Biggest track, really his his major hit was "Convoy," which tells this. Uh, it's a story song, like so many '70s singer songwriters, uh, about this outlaw trucker, rubber duck, uh, and uh, creating this massive convoy. <laughs> it really lends itself to the concept of a film uh, and then Sam Peckinpah came along and made it the craziest movie wow. of all time which to be
1: fair when you think anti-authoritarianism you think Sam Peckinpah sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, but yeah. this is a very weird choice <laughs> for this where was sam peckinpah in his career like he wasn't doing so hot at this point no
3: he? No. I, no i think he was functional i think he, he eventually became like a non-functional alcoholic i, th- I think you could he
2: was Sorry, cam. no, concept. no, you
3: go on. Uh, you probably know better than I do.
2: definitely persona non grata at this point in terms of the studio system. and and I think, you know, to cam's point, what was how long cam you told me this? How long was the original cut of this? Keep in mind, this cut uh, the cut of the film as is, is three hours, which I was oh, yeah. very angry about when I had to <laughs> sit down and watch it. I ended up loving this film, which is I one of the it biggest too. surprises. I never saw that coming. But Cam, can you tell us how long? The yeah, original I believe cut the Sam it was, submitted was
3: the original cut was two hundred and twenty minutes, oh uh, which God. he Point su- in case. which he submitted <laughs> to the studio, and the studio went, uh, "Thank you, you are fired.
2: <laughs> You're fired, uh, and your career is uh, over."
3: Yeah, so. Um, It's interesting. It it still very much feels like a Sam Peckinpah movie, even with Mm -hmm. that much footage exercise. But it's fascinating. Like, release the Snyder Cut. Release the uh, endlessly long uh, Sam Peckinpah convoy.
2: Of slow motion
1: trucks. Oh,
3: my gosh. How much slow motion would be in that?
1: If we're talking about Convoy, which we'll get into the plot, which matters, but also doesn't, sure. because really what we're here... <laughs> There's
3: a Convoy, is, is the plot. <laughs>
1: but the reason why you're really watching this movie is for the stunts and the visuals, because holy crap, this movie is just bananas. And a lot mm. of the stunts ended up going wrong, and those are the cuts they took. <laughs> now, Alicia, you actually went down a deep dive on this, and I'm a total stunt person nerd as well, I think. There should be an Oscar category for stunt people because it's just it's wild.
2: Well, you know, in an era where a lot of stunts are CGI aided today, or I would say 100% CGI. It's just so refreshing to watch a film that is 100% practical stunts and if you have to if you're interested in that i would say this is the film for you there was one so there's a lot of truckers this is an ensemble cast and like the name of the film convoy would imply you know there's a number of trucks that are all banding together on the highways um and i want to say this is like the southwest of the u.s i could be wrong but uh to you know kind of defend spider mike who's been thrown in jail who was just trying to get home to see his um well, his wife and his, uh, you know, his his wife's very pregnant and having their baby and this evil cop arrests him basically just because he's black. And so I started noticing there's a lot of, you know, interesting actors in this, but there was one guy that like looked so both out of place and so in place at the same time that I couldn't figure out why he stuck out to me. Um, And it turns out I went into an IMDb kind of you know, research dive because he's not highly credited. He's a, he is credited, but he's way down on the cast list. And he's, he's a Whitey Hughes, which was like Sam Peckinpah's right-hand man for stunts all through Peckinpah's career. Um, he, you know, worked on uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid on Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. And he was really considered one of the, like a really, really important stuntman who came from a long line of stuntmen and stunt women. Both of his parents worked in stunts um, as a horsehand uh i think even going back to the silent era which i think is so interesting and you'll notice him if you watch this film he's so his name is whitey hughes for a reason um his real name is robert hughes but uh he he has very very light like stark white eyebrows and stark white hair he almost looks like um if i to describe what he looks like it'd be like you know how in robin Hood's robin hood even though they're like anthropomorphized animals you can kind of tell what they would look like in real life like he would look like a mole <laughs> like a mole with like that little white so eyebrows. Big. He has very, very beady <laughs> eyes. And the thing is, he's, he's really driving the truck. Like in most cases, there's stunt doubles for Chris Christopherson, for Ernest Borgnine, who again, were all peck and paw people that he kept with him throughout his career. But in this case, where he's casting Whitey Hughes kind of for the first time in, in a really recognizable role He's able to both perform the stunts and Sam Peckinpah can film them at the same time and not have to do that switch out with characters, which I thought was really interesting and sort of a testament to, as a stunt film, this being really the pinnacle in the 1970s of car like stunt films.
1: One of my favorite stunts in this film is actually one of the stunts that went wrong. And it was performed by Bob Heron, who was doubling for Ernest Borgnine at the time. And fortunately, we actually have a clip of him talking about what went wrong and how he got
4: through it. Well, I was doubling uh, Ernest Borgnine on convoy, chasing uh, Ali McGraw and Chris Christopherson in a semi-truck. And I was supposed to catch up to them, and they were going to force me off the road. But... Unfortunately, they queued me late, so I was doing about 80 miles an hour kept trying to catch up to the semi-truck, and by the time I caught up to it, it was time to go off the road where there was no place to abort to, so you can't back off in the accelerator when you're doing a jump. you got to keep it to the floor so your nose doesn't drop. Now, once I got airborne, it seemed like I was up there forever, and I was just like kind of waiting for the thump. (laughs) Because once you're in a certain position... Once you're in the air... Whatever you're thinking, whatever you do, nothing makes a bit of difference. You just sort of close your eyes and you just hang on waiting for that big thump that You, you know that's coming. I went 15 feet to the billboard, and then I went another 50 feet to the top of the barn. And then I went another 100 feet beyond that before I landed, which landed on all fours. I didn't break anything. Okay, when you <laughs> It was 165 feet. But I got a concussion, and uh, I separated a lot of things. I didn't break anything. And I was a little punchy for a while.
1: I really recommend if people don't want to sit through the full three hours of Convoy, uh, just go look at this stunt on YouTube because it is just bananas that he survived this. And obviously he thought that was a miracle as well. But this is also the kind of movie where no one is phoning this in. Everyone is giving 100%. Like, Chris Christopherson's performance is so focused.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's a dark and serious movie. It's kind of a weird thing where... It, it it's so much of what happens because the stunts are in the Peckinpah style. It's, it feels like it hurts, you know? It, uh, everything seems very deadly. In fact, I, I think that the weirdest thing it doesn't pull off, which seems like a studio idea, is the fact that it kind of tries to have a smoke in the bandit thing between mm-hmm. uh, Ernest Borgnine and Rubber Duck, played by Chris Christopherson, even though Not he's... Not to be
2: mistaken for a disco duck. Yeah,
3: even though he's fully <laughs> trying to murder him the whole way. He's like, but
2: uh, he—he is—he's a straight-up villain. Like it's yeah. that Ergenç But he still tries to have he's... the like,
3: ah, you, you know. At the end, it's like, oh, geez, that doesn't really play.
2: I think it's a good point because this is a—the stakes are very high in this film in terms of you know its politics and, and why this is all happening with racial profiling and there's a lot of violence and yet there's these moments in this film that are so elegant and almost. Ballet like, um, you know. Obviously, the West, the the trucker genre of film gets compared to the western, where you know the trucks are just subbed out for horses. But what I I did not expect were these very peck and paw branded slow motion sequences of the trucks and the stunts going wrong, set to bolero, which is a I believe it's an, a ballet a, a music written for ballet from the late nineteenth century. That I did not see coming, and and (laughs) set to the like beauty of the American Southwest or the desert. I should have looked up where this was. It's it's a lot of land. It's a lot of landscape. It's (laughs) barren landscape with all you see is like horizon. New Mexico,
1: Nevada. I thought it was New Mexico,
2: Arizona, but it's certainly not like Peck and Palm Monument Valley. It's south of that, but uh, it's New Mexico. It is confirmed. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, set to Bolero. You all know Bolero. I'm pretty sure Becky's going to play it for you in a second. (laughs) The idea of the two main songs in this film being Convoy, as discussed by Cam, and Bolero, one of the most classic ballets of all time. I mean, that's just the beauty to me of Sam Peckinpah. And that's what this film, I think, has flawlessly pulled off that balance between the gruff and the elegant. Like no other. I can't think of another film like this for me anyway.
1: Alicia, I think that is the perfect place to wrap up this episode. I want to thank both Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland.
3: Thanks.
2: Thank you. I I forgot to say the bone I had to pick with Convoy was that Ali McGraw has the worst hair of all time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to do a little bit about that and I can edit it in? I want to
2: leave it for our listeners to (laughs) discover for themselves because it is shocking.
1: And you, the listener, can join us again in two weeks where we find out how you make a Beatles movie without the Beatles because they did it twice in 1978. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Mainz. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. If we know ourselves. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.
0: We're always home, anywhere.